Okay, well, good morning, everyone, and great to see you this morning, and glad to see that people are still here, even with the, the changes and, and stuff like that, and the regulations. I'm, I know I've been super grateful this week that, despite all the changes, um, how we go about our church gatherings really hasn't changed that much, because our, we're already kind of at the same capacity that they've now required for us, um, so that's kind of really nice, actually gracious of the Lord that we get to continue doing uh, what we do, and that includes this class, and I'm grateful to be here this morning diving into Romans and uh, following off where Dr. Jim left us after the last few weeks. I'm wondering if we can just start briefly this morning by recapping a tiny little bit about what we've gone through, what are some of the main themes we've looked at in Romans so far, Um, maybe trying to remember where we left off a little bit last week. Um, has there been anything, I guess I should say, from the first, you know, one and a half chapters, or partway through chapter two now, uh, that has really stood out to you about the book of Romans as we've been studying this time, or anything that uh, seems to keep coming up as we discuss the book of Romans? Anything? Well, it seems to me like as we've been study, I know as I've been looking through the book of Romans, they're really so far up to this point, and I think it's going to continue, has really been an emphasis on the difference or the, the vastness between humanity and God's righteousness. How perfect and holy and set apart God is in comparison to anyone who is not God, essentially. Anyone who is a human being who is limited by our sin nature, and the fact that we, by our sin nature, are not righteous, and we are not pro-God, we are in fact anti-God in many ways. Though we are made in God's image, much of us, within us, that sin nature, works against us finding our way to God, if that were such a thing. Um, The way that we are, you know, marred by the fall has caused us to be in a situation where we cannot earn our way to salvation, and Paul has really been emphasizing that here at the start of this oh-so-important letter, emphasizing how important it is that God is perfect and that we are not. We see him talking a lot about the idea of unbelief and belief, uh, really emphasizing how we are saved, Um, and we're going to, again, see that theme coming up throughout the letter. Um, And then in the section we've just kind of looked at in chapter 2 in the beginning half, it really, again, goes back and forth back to our character contrasted with God. And what we see here is a description of God in the opening of chapter 2 and how he judges in that he judges righteously because he is righteous. He judges based on what we actually do, not just what we say we want to do and that would include the actions of our heart um, or the thoughts within our heart as well, Um, and that he judges uh, each one for their own and without uh, partiality. He is a God that treats equally um, and is going to deal with sin on on an equal playing field for all peoples. Um, What's interesting in this and what we're going to kind of see coming into this is we know, despite the fact that God is impartial, that there is a special relationship between God and Israel. So even though he is not judging them 
differently. There is still a difference in their connection. And Paul's really going to spend some time in the passage we're going to look at today focusing on that connection with Israel. Um, So we're going to be starting in verse 17 today, uh, and we're going to see Paul specifically addressing the Jewish people at this point. Now, Jim and or Josiah may have talked about this before, but I think one thing that's really important as we look at a section like this is understanding, we always say understanding the context is important, but understanding the perspective that Paul is coming from I think is really important, especially in this section. Uh, one of the things I know Josiah has talked about a lot, even on Sunday mornings, but also in this, in this class, is that oftentimes when Paul is writing his letters to churches, when you see the word you, he's often talking to who? To the Jews in many cases, sometimes, but if he's writing a letter to the church, he's talking to, as Josiah would say with his southern drawl, y'all, right? Oftentimes if we see you in one of Paul's letters, it's often the plural form of you. But there's a few sections, especially here in Romans, where Paul actually switches back to the singular. And it's not that he is addressing one specific you or person, but it's almost as though he's creating an imaginary opponent. It's uh, a style of writing called a diatribe, where he's setting up a fake, almost, argument to make a point. So in this case, in in the second half of chapter 2 in particular, when he's saying, you do this, and you do this, and you trust in this, he's not like pointing the finger at one specific person. He's not, in fact, even blaming the whole church or telling them what they've been doing wrong. He's setting up a situation where he's saying, almost hypothetically, if this is how you act, or if this is how you believe, or if this is how you trust, we need to have a conversation. You need to understand that maybe you're missing the point a little bit here. So I think that's just an important piece to note as we look at this section in the second half of chapter 2 that Paul is not really, it sounds like he's being really, really harsh in some ways. Again, if this was addressed to a specific person, it would sound pretty harsh. But he's created a hypothetical here, which still has harshness to it because he wants the people to understand if you are relying on this, in this case you're your Jewishness, if you're relying on the law or circumcision or any of the things we're going to talk about, you are missing the point because you are not going to be saved by these things. And so it's really important that we understand that looking into that. Does that make sense? We're good? Okay. Uh, Starting at verse 17 of chapter 2. We got one of Paul's classic run-on sentences here, so we'll try and take it a few verses at a time. He says this in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and really and re, sorry and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and distinguish things uh, the things that matter, being instructed from the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to people who are blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, possessing in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach someone else, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one is not to steal, do you steal? You who say that one is not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who loathe idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? 
we'll pause it there. This is what I've been talking about here. So he's, he's again, not accosting a individual or even the church as a whole, but setting up a situation as if to say, if you do this, you are dishonoring God. He's asking these rhetorical questions, right? He's saying, he starts off in the first few verses by really listing off a lot of positive qualities, right? He says, you who call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. Well, those are good. You want to, relying upon the law, he's not condemning that. That's great. You rely upon the law, okay. You boast in God, sure. I'd rather boast in God than anyone else. That's a good thing. You know his will and distinguish from the things that matter. Like, that's again, a compliment. Like, he's saying, if you are an Israelite, if you trust in the law, you boast in God, you want to discern God's will, you know right from wrong, discerning what's important, you're instructed by the law, these are great things. You can be confident that you yourself are a guide to people who are blind. This would be a reference to probably you think you are the ones guiding the Gentiles or leading them towards salvation uh, in verse 19. A light to those in darkness. You know, we're all called to be that way. These are great things. A corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, possessing in the law of the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. So he's setting up this hypothetical person. If this is you, you trust the law. You boast in God. You believe in him. You discern what's right for wrong. You try and do what's best. You want to lead the blind. You want to correct the foolish. Like, this is great. If this is you, and some of his listeners or readers might be hearing to me like, yeah, yeah, that is me. Yeah, yeah, I try and do this. And then he changes his tone in uh, 21. You, therefore, who teach someone else, do you not teach yourself? And so imagine this. Imagine you're sitting in a situation, and you're maybe hearing a sermon, and Maybe Josiah's preaching, he's like describing all these incredible things. You're like, actually, I'm pretty good at those things. Yeah, like I like to pray. Praying is good. I read my Bible. This is great. And then he stands up and says, you who read the Bible, you who pray, you who say you trust in God, do you really trust in God? And you're sitting there like, oh, I don't, well, I don't know now. Like, do I? It's, it's kind of the question he's asking here. You who teach everyone else or claim to teach others, do you even teach yourself? Do you really believe what you say you're believing is sort of the question here? You who preach that one is not to steal, do you not steal? I mean, most of us would say, I, I hope not. We would say it's wrong to steal, and hopefully we don't. But he's asking the question that, again, gets back to the heart of the matter that is going to force whoever's listening to this, whoever's reading this, to ask the question, well, do I practice what I preach? We think of the times... Is particular. I mean, we're just going through Matthew still in, in the, the main service from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you know, you say not to murder, but have you ever hated anyone? It's pretty much a, a very similar <laughs> kind of question here. Right? You say not to commit adultery, but have you ever lusted? It's almost what Paul is doing here. You say you shouldn't steal. That's great, but do you ever steal? You say that you shouldn't commit adultery, but do you ever commit adultery? He's saying, you know what the law says. You know the letter of the law you know what God's instructions are. Do you obey them perfectly? Is essentially the question that it boils down to. You know what is right, but do you actually do what is right? You know what the law is. Do you actually keep the law in its entirety? So again, we look back at the context of Romans up to this point, God, uh, Paul contrasting God's perfect, perfection, his righteousness, and humans' unrighteousness, here it's as though he's addressing the law itself and saying, we know that the law is good. We know that God created the law. God I, wants 
them to follow the law. And it's great that you know the law. But if you're not perfectly holding to the letter of the law, there's an issue. There's a disconnect here. And I think that's what he's starting to get at here with the people. He says, you, didn't, you say you loathe idols. Are you who loathe idols? Do you rob temples? Talking about at the fact there was people at the time, perhaps in Rome, that you know, would say, do not bow to idols, do not boast in idols, anything. But they would go in and destroy Gentile temples uh, to, to the other gods and maybe steal the idols to melt them down and tell themselves, you know, I'm doing a good thing. I'm burning this idol to Artemis or whatever it is, but then use that in their own temple. We, we, mean, we have plenty of examples in the Old Testament where God says, no, 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 don't, don't just take their stuff and use it. Like, burn it to the ground. This is no good. He's, again, he's calling up this kind of double standard. He's asking the question to a hypothetical opponent. You know what the rules are. Do you actually follow them? You know what the law is. Do you actually keep to it? It's an important question, one that's no doubt convicting to the people he's writing to and I think can be convicting to us as well. How often can we stand before ourselves or before the Lord and say, I know what God expects of me. Do I actually do it? You know, I know that God says, do not murder, and I haven't murdered. Have I hated? Hmm, that's a, that's a different question. You know, I take it a different, you know, the, I know the Lord wants me to be honest. Have I been fully honest with everyone? I know the Lord wants me to give of myself and sacrifice of myself. Have I done that to the extent? It really opens up this hypothetical question of when we know the Lord's will and don't do it. When we know what God wants of us, do we always do what he wants of us? Verse 24 takes it uh, even further. uh, Quoting... From the Old Testament, he says, "From the name for the name is of God. Sorry, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written." Which is implying that he's calling out specifically Israel here and saying, "If this is the way you're living, you can assume that the Gentiles are noticing." In fact, he might be getting specific here and saying, "Gentiles are noticing when you claim to live one way, but you don't actually live that way." when you're not practicing what you preach, when you hold everyone or claim to hold everyone to this standard of the law, but you yourself are not living up to it, you know, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. There's people, Gentile people who are saying, why would I ever follow that God? They say there's these, all these rules and that God wants us to live this way, but they don't even live that way. Why would I follow that God? I don't know about you, but I can find that a little convicting too when I think of the people that I connect with, my friends, my family members, who know what I do for a living. (laughs) They know I work in a church. They know I'm a Christian. They know I believe in God. How many times have I lived in such a way or acted in such a way that causes them to question why they would follow the God that I follow? I like to think there's times that I've acted in positive ways that have pointed to a good reason to follow God, but I know for a fact there's times in my life that I haven't lived the way that I would want to live or claim to want to live in front of those that I'm trying to witness to. And I find this, uh, yeah, it's convicting. It's a lot. Um, any thoughts about any of this so far? I've been, I've been talking a lot, but any thoughts about this? Well, if we continue, he's going to take it more specifically again. He's addressing a hypothetical hypothetical Jewish opponent here, and he's going to take it even more specific for them. 
uh, talking about, you know, we've been talking about the law. He's going to talk about circumcision here and this thing that they have, um, I don't want to use the phrase hidden behind, but have considered to be the thing that sets them apart in many ways. And it has set them apart. Um, and in many may have thought it to be salvific. Uh, verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a violator of the law, your circumcision has turned into uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will his uncircumcision not be regarded as circumcision? And he who physically is uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, uh, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a violator of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from people, but from God. Another one of Paul's confusing run-on sentences. But the point that I think he's getting at here is if you trust only to this hypothetical Jewish appointment, if you only are trusting in your circumcision, but you're not keeping perfectly to the law, that alone is not enough to save you. Just as we would say on the flip side, if someone wasn't, by outward appearance, Jewish, but they were somehow able to keep the entirety of the law, would that not make them righteous in God's eyes, despite their lack of heritage or their lack of this physical outward sign? He's saying if there is someone, a Gentile perhaps, that is not circumcised, who is able to keep the law better than you, or keep it perfectly, in fact, in this case, hypothetically speaking, are they not more or better in God's eyes than you are just because your parents made a choice or you were born into this family or you were part of this heritage? Again, he's getting to the point here that it's not just about the outward actions. It's not just about what makes them who they are, but it's about their actions before God. It's about how well they're able to keep the law. And again, coming back full circle to the point that None but Jesus were able to keep the law. If someone could hypothetically keep to all aspects of the law, that would be great, but no one has done it. And so he's saying, calling them out here, you think you're saved because you're circumcised? You think you're saved because you know the law? Knowing the law is not keeping the law, right? Being set apart by God does not mean you have actually lived for God. In the same way that nowadays we would say, Knowing the speed limit doesn't mean that you're necessarily following it. Knowing what the rules are with the COVID laws or whatever you want to call them doesn't mean we're necessarily all following them the way we're supposed to. In the same way, he's saying knowing what the law is is not following the law. It's not about the letter of the law or having the law. Yes, that's important, and we're going to come into that a little bit more later that it is important that the Jewish people have been set apart. They have been given an incredible privilege by being given the law, by being given the gift or the sign of circumcision. And yet he's saying you can't trust in that alone to be what saves you or makes you righteous. Because at the end of the day, that's not what's going to make you righteous. And I think for the majority of us in this room who are not Jewish heritage, we can say that's nice that we have an opportunity too. But then we look at this and say, man, this is actually, again, convicting for all of us. Because whether we would say we're under the law or not, we are now under obedience to Christ. 
And I know for a fact, I'll speak for myself, that I have not been perfectly obedient. I'm sure that none of us have been perfectly obedient either. And so again, we have to ask ourselves the question, coming out of a passage like this, whether it's addressed to us directly or not, are there times that I know what God wants me to do and I don't do it? What am I trusting in for my salvation? And hopefully we would say salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which is the point that Paul is going to get to. But again, we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, where's my obedience at? <laughs> at the end of the day, where's my obedience? How obedient am I to the God that I claim to follow? How is it affecting my witness to those around me? Am I subconsciously, whether I verbally say it or not, are there times that I actually trust in my works to save me or trust in my, you know, knowledge or my heritage or my whatever it is to do something that it wasn't actually intended to do? Um, and I think that's one of the questions we, we end up asking here. Any thoughts on that? Any, any things I'm probably missing, Stephen, or, or insight in here? Exactly. But there's a lot of Jewish people today, especially amongst the ultra-Orthodox, who say they keep the law. Now there's a line right there, mm -hmm. so they've broken it already. Yes. And then you see on the Sabbath, they turn around and say, well, if there's a stranger among you, invite him to your home. And you know, a lot of Jewish people really don't like Gentiles in their home. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's why we need to be in the Word all the time, so that we can follow the Word. The Jewish people think by going to the wall or praying every day and, and doing their um, reading every day or putting on the tefillin or cooking up, you know, this sort of is going to save you. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's the Word of God that washes us. It's the Word of God that helps us every day. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. I think that's really a helpful understanding of Again, it's that same piece of trusting in anything other than the blood of Christ to save us. We are not going to be able to fully accomplish the law. And these, these actions, while they can be good and they can be helpful, um, perhaps, are not the thing that's going to save us. It's, again, as though Paul is kind of digging us into a trench of like, sometimes I think at this point he almost wants us to ask the question of like, well, then who can do this? You know, who then can be saved? Because he's going to get us to that conclusion eventually and give us some of the best, most hopeful, most encouraging verses, I think, in all of Scripture about our assurance of salvation. But it seems here that he's really digging a deep hole here for the readers of saying, if this is you and you're trusting in your circumcision, if you're trusting in the law that you don't even keep, I mean, you're on a, you're on a, a bad road here and you're, you're missing out for sure. So let's kind of reverse now uh, out of that direction to a positive one or at least a bit more <clears throat> Not quite yet, but moving in the right direction, we'll see. Uh, chapter 3. Yeah, please. Uh, just another thought there. Mm -hmm. is, uh, such a man's praise is not for men, but for God. Hmm. Verse 29. Uh, when you remember that 
Judah, which means praise. Yes. So the the Jews were meant by their being distinct, called by God to be distinct, to show the way, to indeed be a light to the Gentiles, a guide to the blind. That was their job. That was why they were singled out to bear the message, and they were meant to be a praise to God. Mm-hmm. Yes. They were causing the name of God to be brought down, not to be raised by. So he's he's using a contrast there. Definitely. And when he ends by such a man's praise is not from men but from God, he's saying now that that is the spirit of what I intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important point, Jim. And, and even you can see that in the fact that Paul, who was Jewish, the word that he's using here, calling them, referring to this hypothetical opponent as a Jew and not an Israelite or one of Israel or many other terms he could have used, he chooses to use the term Jew, pointing back to Judah. And also it's the word that most often would have been used by the Gentile people to describe them at the time as well. So you're right, he's totally setting up this contrast and saying, this is what you were called to be. This is what it could have been. This is what God wanted. You were never going to get there. But instead, this is what actually it can look like. If, if this person, because the, the verse you're talking about, 29, his praise is not from people but, the, but from God, he's talking about one who is not a Jew only outwardly, but is one who has demonstrated their obedience and their praise to God through their life from the inside. And so he's setting up, I love that you brought that up, Jim, the, the contrast there. You know, he is a Jew who is one inwardly and the circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter of the law, but by that which is in their heart. And his praise is not from people. He's not just praised by the people around him, but from God himself accomplishing that. That's a really important, important contrast. Thanks for bringing that up, Jim. <clears throat> Let's continue verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 then what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Well, it's great in every respect. First, that they were entrusted with the actual words of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the the faithfulness of God, will it? Far from it. Rather, God must prove to be true, though every person be found a liar, as it is written, so that you are justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking from a human viewpoint. Far from it, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, let's do evil that good may come of it. Their condemnation is deserved. I'm going to pause there for a sec. What we can see here is Paul setting up, again, following this hypothetical argument he's had with this hypothetical opponent, he now brings up these hypothetical questions or arguments or oppositions that a person, specifically here, a Jew, might respond to 
after he's made these claims. You know, the law isn't saving you because you're not following it. Your circumcision doesn't save you. So now he brings up all these questions that a Jew might respond with and ask in response. And he gives responses to those responses. So it gets confusing. It gets very back and forth. There's lots of weird question marks and weird sentence structure. But let's try and work through them one at a time. And the first one being, you know, here's an opposition. Well, then what, what advantage does the Jew have? What is the benefit of circumcision? Almost as if we would ask in another way of like, so are you saying, Paul, that the Jew doesn't have an advantage or that circumcision means nothing is what they might be asking? And Paul's response in verse 2, well, no, he's not saying that at all. He's saying they have great advantage, great in every respect. First and foremost, it's because they were entrusted with the actual words of God. He's saying that is a privilege. That doesn't erase Nothing that has been done in all of this erases the fact that this people were set apart by God, that he gave them his very words in the law at Sinai, that he made promises and covenants with them, with Abraham, with his descendants, continuously. None of that is taken away by these facts. So he's basically just shutting down that first opposition right away. Are you saying, Paul, that there's no advantage to being Jew? He's like, no, 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 I'm not saying that. There is great advantage in every respect, for they were entrusted with the actual words of God. Verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Again, a question phrased backwardsly, almost in a double negative here. But basically saying, oh, so Paul, are you saying because they're not faithful that God, or they don't believe that God has broken his promises, that God is not going to be faithful to the covenant of Abraham if they don't believe, right? We have the covenant. We know them, and we can recite them. We know that God promised he would bless every nation through Abraham. We know that God promised a king would come, that he would offer salvation, that this nation would multiply. Well, Paul, are you saying that if we don't believe that God's not going to be faithful to his promises is basically the question that's being asked hypothetically. Verse 4, far from it. Rather, God must prove to be true, though every person be found a liar, as it is written, so that you are justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He's saying, no, 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 no. Don't you dare. Don't you dare suggest that because you're not willing to believe that God is somehow not going to be faithful to his promises. We can ask that or say that about ourselves now. Like, we cannot say that God has not kept his promises or will not keep his promises. God will keep his promises to Israel. God will keep his promises to the church. God will keep his promises to those he made the promises to. Again, we want to be careful not to assign promises around that were made for one people group to assign them equally to another people group. But God cannot lie. We know that from scripture. He is the God who cannot lie, and so he will be faithful even if everyone else is a liar, it says. Paul's saying even if everyone else is untrue, you can trust that the one who will be true is God. So don't you even suggest that somehow God's trying to look for a way to weasel out of his promises, because that is not the God that we're talking about here. He gets even more serious in verse 5. Here's the, the next one. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not righteous. unrighteous, is he? And we have this little, it's in brackets in mind. I'm speaking from a human viewpoint. This is almost as though Paul catches himself saying something in a hypothetical 
argument that he wants to make very clear, I'm not being blasphemous here, even though this argument is blasphemous. He's bringing up a hypothetical argument, and he wants to make it clear, by the way, this is purely human perspective. This is for the sake of argument. Like, I don't believe this. He doesn't want anyone quoting this saying, oh, see, Paul suggests that God is unrighteous. He says, no, 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 I'm speaking from a human perspective here. Don't think badly of me because I'm making this argument. But what is the question? If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? It's saying, if God can still point to his own righteousness through our unrighteousness, is there not a situation where God is unrighteous in his judgment? And Paul's like, again, how dare you? How dare anyone believe this? Again, he's having a hypothetical argument here, so it's not like he's accusing one person. But it's, it's, he's saying, we can never say, just because, just because we are sinful and God finds a way to point to his own righteousness despite our unrighteousness, let us never say that God is unrighteous in his judgment. To put it in a different way that maybe makes a little more sense or is a little bit clearer, there's the issue of grace. There's that many people have an issue with when it comes to Christianity. Many people have an issue with the grace that someone could live their whole lives doing evil, but according to the Christian belief, if they come to the Lord and ask for forgiveness and believe in Jesus, by his grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, they can be forgiven and spend eternity with the Lord. Some have pointed at that and said, how is that fair? How is that fair that someone can spend their whole life doing evil and I can spend my whole life sometimes doing bad things but living a pretty good life and at the end of the day, we both end up in heaven together? How is that fair? Doesn't that mean that God's unfair? How can a just God punish us, neither of us, punish neither of us despite the fact that this person did evil their whole life? I mean, I'm sure many of us have heard that or, or thought that perhaps at times. Paul's saying, don't even dare. Don't you dare mar the character of God. Don't you dare defame his character and suggest that God is not righteous because he chooses to be gracious to those who turn and believe in him. Just because God can take a sinner and use their sin for his glory and flip it around to point to his own righteousness, don't accuse God of being unrighteous, because that is not at all what he is doing. Pretty intense. <clears throat> um, yeah. Yeah, please. Mm -hmm. Therefore, our unrighteousness is to God's benefit. Mm -hmm. um, it shows how perfect he is because we are so unperfect. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Then why should he judge us? Because we're, we're actually displaying how perfect God is by, by giving the contrast of our imperfection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's a great question because, again, it, it points to, well, if God is benefiting from this, why, why does it matter? Right? And that's what he really gets into in the next one, for sure, um, as well. Like they're, The next two are really kind of similar. If through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, 
why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Like, if my sin points to how great and perfect God is, doesn't that benefit God? Why am I being judged? Why am I being judged as a sinner if my sin points to how great God is? I mean, that's, we would say, just a ridiculous question in and of itself, right? Because as you say, it does not change the character of God. My sin, though it may point to God's righteousness, as you're saying, Jim, and highlight how great he is, doesn't somehow get me off the hook just because God is shown to be more righteous to others by my actions. We're going to see Paul talking later um, and say, you know, should I basically put grace to the test? Should I, should I just live however I want because I know I'm going to be forgiven? No. Far from it. Of course not. Otherwise, he says in verse 6, how will God judge the world? He's saying if God is not righteous, he can't be the judge. So how can you suggest that? If through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let's do evil that good may come of it. Their condemnation is deserved. He's saying there's people out there who say that we, Paul, Timothy, perhaps, the people that are working together for the sake of the gospel, there are people that are slandering them and saying, hey, these guys suggest you can do whatever you want. You do evil because it points to God's glory. Paul's saying, first of all, that's slander. We've never said that, and we would not say that. He's saying their condemnation is deserved. Do not, do not accuse us of things we are not saying, and do not assume that somehow, just because God can take benefit from your sin, that that gets you off the hook or makes you a, a better person. You know, we might think of an illustration. If someone... <clears throat> someone goes to murder someone else, let's say, I'm making this up on the fly, so it's going to be a terrible illustration. Let's say someone has a plan to go and, and sin against someone else. They're going to go and murder someone. And in going to murder that person, they uncover a big conspiracy against the government, a big uh, a spy network or something. I don't know. I'm making this up. It's Sunday. It's early. And they take that and they go and reveal that to the authorities, and they, they break down this huge smuggling or smuggling operation. Well, they were still on their way to murder someone. They're not off the hook for the fact that they were intending to kill, or perhaps they even did kill the person they were going to kill, and then uncovered all these things. Doing the good or good coming of this negative situation doesn't get them off the hook for the bad thing they were doing. Now, in our justice system, perhaps they would use that to plea for uh, immunity or something like that. But on a more holistic level, in terms of what's right and what's wrong, that doesn't become less wrong to murder just because you find something good in the process. In the same way, just because God looks even better when we compare him with us and our sin doesn't mean we should try and make ourselves even more depraved or even lower than we are just so that God can shine brighter. Because again, as you pointed out earlier, Jim, there's the contrast there of, what would people say about that? Like, how does me living sinfully, it might show how great God is, but does it point to God? Does it point to the fact that I claim to follow God or want to follow God? Absolutely not. And we don't want God to be defamed by our character and our poor choices. Yeah, please. But he has a 
even more brilliant nurses. So are you seeing the smoke more? Skin is very delicate mm -hmm. to us. People might not see it like that, but it's like you continue talking damage to your body so that you can say, hey, I'm doing your favor, doctor. When you cure me, because you cured you could, so then uh, what, a, what a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. What a great. Mm-hmm. That's a great example because it points it. It works on a couple levels because, you know, if someone is saying, you know, I'm not going to give up smoking because a, you can fix me down the road, and b, when you do fix me, how much greater will it be for you that you cured someone who is even worse off than if I stopped now? And worse. <laughs> is that smoking? Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah, dare we not say that we should continue sinning because God can fix us anyways? Or dare we not say that we should continue sinning and sin worse because that points more to God's glory? Of course not. We know that God can and will redeem the worst of the worst if, they, if he so chooses and if they believe in him. And yet that does not give us an excuse or a reason to take a negative path. In the same way we wouldn't say that, you know, just because people have learned from tragedy that we should seek tragedy. We think of those powerful testimonies. I'm sure we've all heard of people who have been dramatically brought out of sin by God. We don't look at that and say, wow, like I should go and live a life of sin so that God can, I can have a better testimony. Of course not. Uh, verse 9. <clears throat> what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So here, he's bringing it back full circle. He said, here's some opposition. Here's what I'm going to go to Israel and say. Israelites, Jewish people, don't just trust in the law because you're not keeping it. Don't just trust in circumcision. Let's have a hypothetical argument here of objections you may raise. But at the end of the day, let's come back to the full circle and say, verse 9, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Whether you're Jewish or Gentile, we are all under sin. And here's his big kind of, I mean, he lists, there's a, a bunch of different verses here from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, from Isaiah, um, all little bits and pieces. But pointing back to their scripture, again, pointing back to scripture, which is a, an interesting thing that I'll maybe talk about in a sec. But he, here's, because of what God has said in his word, here's what we know. There is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and they have not known the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
Paul doesn't want any questions. <laughs> he doesn't want any uncertainty here. It's very much, let me explain to you why this all matters. This whole, and really this wraps up the section as a whole that we've been looking at from the middle of chapter 1 until here, where Paul is kind of really getting to his point and saying, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Greek, whether you follow to the law a little bit, whether you're circumcised or not, whether any of these things, none of us are righteous. There is no one who is righteous. There's no one who understands all that God wants. There's no one who actually seeks God when God hasn't sought them or revealed himself to them. He obviously adds some uh, exaggeration here to make a point. Obviously, he's not saying every single person, their feet are swift to shed blood. We're not running towards violence. But he's trying to make the point that we might as well, as you said, Stephen, before, if you break one law, you have broke the law. You have broke them all. He's saying here, as good as you think you are, you are not in comparison to God. You have not held up to that standard. And this is the most, arguably one of the most important things that people understand when it comes to you know, sharing the gospel or evangelizing. We have to start at this point of we are not good enough. We are not good enough to get there. We cannot earn it. We are not righteous. There is none. Whether I think that I'm better than you or not, whether you're in practice better than me or not, none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. Their mouth is full of cursing. But talking about the fact that, you know, even from our mouths, from what's within, Jesus talks about that, right? Uh, what, what, um, not corrupts, I don't think is the word he used, but he talks about the fact when, uh, we just talked about in Matthew, when uh, the Pharisees accuse his followers of not washing their hands before they eat. And he says, right? It's not about what's on the outside. It's about what comes from within. And it's the same kind of thing we're getting at here is, Our righteousness is not about our actions because we cannot do enough actions to earn our way. We cannot do enough works to make ourselves this way. We cannot just find our way there. Yes. Then we have a thing in Judaism, especially in the Old Orthodox, the Orthodox, and so on. Yes. We have one main man who is a chief rabbi. Yes. Who thinks he is next to God. So what do people do in Judaism is that they look to him and mm. say, he can do this, and he's coming out of this, we're safe. Yeah. But when, they, when you read this, look, none of us are right. Mm-hmm. Not even the chief rabbi, not even, not even Paul himself, like of all people who could have perhaps called that out. <laughs> yeah. Even the chief rabbi here in Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this section, too, is primarily we would say from, from research and history that primarily the audience of the book of Romans, or the letter that Paul wrote, was primarily mostly Gentile. 
there would have been Jewish readers and audience as well. But we can see even the fact that Paul ends his discourse here, this couple chapter discourse, with Scripture, rather than someone like, say, uh, in the book of Hebrews, who starts with Scripture because of a primarily Jewish audience. Here he's talking to the Gentiles, convincing them all these things, ending with Scripture to kind of round it out, bringing the Jewish people in as well. And what does it do? What does this Scripture do, ultimately, is it equalizes, right? So although he just finished saying that there is advantage to being a Jew because of what they have received and what God has done for them and chosen in them, and yet here we have this equalizer. God just judges impartially. God is righteous. We are not, whether Jew or Greek, we are on equal playing field before the Lord when it comes to his righteousness and his justice. And verse 18, I mean, this describes our world now, does it not? There is no fear of God before their eyes. Like, that is the, the almost ultimate nail in the coffin. Like, no one's righteous because they can't earn their way, they can't do it, they can't keep the law, and yet, what else in, in the midst of all of this? There's no fear of God. And we'd say that about our world now, that there's no fear of God in their eyes. No one, everyone's just concerned about what they can do in their own strength, what they can accomplish on their own, what's, what's in it for me. There's no fear of God in their eyes. And then, as I said, 19 and 20 really round it out and say, you know, we can know the law. That's good. But let's be reminded here that the law and knowing the law is what shows us ultimately that we are not righteous. Knowing the rules shows us how much we have broken the rules. Knowing what God expects is what reveals to us how much we have failed in that expectation. <clears throat> we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Basically saying, we all know at least some of it, whether it's written on our heart, whether it's been given to us as our nation, whatever it is, we know what God wants. So it basically, so that every mouth may be closed. So we all shut up and just stop arguing. We all shut up and stop saying, I can do this. But rather just trust in the Lord is the, the direction that Paul is going to get to in the next verses. None of mankind will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. We know that the law shows us how far deprived we are from God. And that seems like a really depressing place to end, and so I really just want to read the next verse, because I think it's helpful. <laughs> I want to end on a positive But, this is like one of the biggest buts in Romans, or in the Bible. Oh, it's not even the next verse. Sorry. Uh, oh, it's, it's way further. I'm sorry, I, I read part of it. It's gonna, Paul's going to change his direction. He's going to talk about, okay, now given all this, that we cannot be righteous... There is a solution, and that is what we hope for. And I hate leaving on a sour note of, we all suck. <laughs> None of us are righteous. But we know this is Paul building us towards the anticipation of the fact that there is a solution in Christ. And we know that. And we're going to go worship that same God this morning. Um, I hate ending on a sour note like that, but that's where the text leaves us. So uh, Paul purposely is leaving some or trying to create some tension. So I guess we'll get to deal with that tension for another week uh, before we come back to it next week. Any other thoughts or questions or, or concerns before we wrap up today? Yeah, Rick. Okay, so um, just an observation. Mm-hmm.
224. Mm-hmm. Why does he switch the language, yeah? Yeah, I would I would be cautious in in applying that that rule universally. Yeah, like I don't know, it's just an observation. Yeah, it, it I'm sure we would definitely say that Luke for sure and Paul, as they write their scripture, they, they definitely have reasoning behind the words that they use. Um I'm not entirely sure why the difference between Gentile and Greek. In this case, it could be that distinction. Um, I would just be cautious of applying that universally. So it could be something cool or interesting to look for and keep your eye out for. Oh, when does he use Greek versus Gentile? When does he use Hebrew versus Israelite versus Jew? Um, Because there's definitely a point to it and definitely a pattern to it. I'm not positive that it's about salvation. So... But, but very interesting observation for sure, because I think there's obviously there's obviously something something there, in that he's using different words that we talked about. I think a couple of weeks how he um, referred to the fool and the barbarian, uh, the uncultured, and these were all different words uh, of differing levels of. Um, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Some of them could have been deme- considered demeaning or used in derogatory ways at times, depending on the, the context, for sure. So, yeah. Well, why don't we wrap up today? We're a few minutes out from service. Let me pray for us, and we can go and worship the Lord together.